0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, here we
1: are on September 21st, 2023. My name is Bill Domnarski with another edition episode of the podcast that I do for the New Books Network. And today, very pleased to have Aaron Tang, who's a law professor at the University of California Davis Law School, to talk about his new book, Supreme Hubris subtitle is How Overconfidence is Destroying the Court and How We Can Fix It. That's a pretty uh, substantial topic. So, Aaron, thank you for doing this. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get to UC Davis to teach law? Sure.
2: Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Bill. It's a, it's a real honor to be here and uh, a big fan of your work. Uh, so, sure. So, I am a, currently a law professor at the University of California, Davis. I've been teaching here for, this is my eighth Year now, uh, before that I worked in private practice at a law firm in D.C., Jones Day, and before that I was a law clerk to Justice Sonia Sotomayor at the Supreme Court, and before that I was a law clerk at for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals for a very different Judge Jave Harvey Wilkinson III, a Ronald Reagan appointee, um, and you know before that I did the usual stuff. I, uh, I went to law school, college, and you know ate crayons as a preschooler.
1: I didn't know that you had clerked for Wilkinson. I'm a fan, I think. Uh, He's a former journalist of all things.
2: Yes, that's right. Did he he ever talk
1: much about his career? No, he didn't.
2: Uh, So when I clerked, he was already in his late 60s and because he had been appointed to the bench like 38, it had been decades since his journalism career. Uh, But uh, very clear to me that that had an influence on his work, uh, his craftsmanship, the care with which he took to write at the level of each sentence, uh, I think was a reflection of his devotion to the journalist craft. Um, so I learned a a great deal from him as a judge. Tell me how you won the lottery and got to be a Supreme court law clerk. Where did you go to school? So I went to law school at Stanford. Um, and, and I think your description is exactly right. It is a lottery, right? Anybody who's out here telling you that clerking for a Supreme court justice is a meritocracy, that it's the, you know, the, Bright Only the most brilliant, brightest students who who make it there is is selling you a fiction. There are thousands of law students, graduates every year who are qualified to do the work of the Supreme Court. Um, And the lottery is won by people who happen to have professors uh, at their law schools who know the justices, to have judges who clerk for judges at the Court of Appeals who know the justices and are able to put in a good word and, and uh, get you an interview. And at that point, it's just basically sort of luck, happenstance, do you have a, do you hit it off with the justice or not? I interviewed with Justice Kagan before I interviewed with Justice Sotomayor and that didn't work out, right? Just
1: sort of luck. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I think that explains it. So before we started uh, the podcast, you and I were talking about the Yale Law School. And the Yale Law School is famous in part for this uh, very high success rate that they've had placing students as Supreme Court law clerks, and there is apparently a real emphasis at the school to try and place them at the Supreme Court. Was there anything similar to that at Stanford when you were there?
2: Yeah, so I think less so than Yale and Harvard and maybe even Chicago. I mean, I think certainly there are individual professors, several professors with close connections to judges and justices uh, who um, are instrumental. So Pam Carlin and Jeff Fisher are professors there who were incredibly supportive. I'm so grateful. I'm sure I would not have clerked for Judge Wilkinson or Justice Sotomayor without their support. Uh, Mike McConnell, Professor McConnell, himself a former judge on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, has great relationships with the justices and judges. And he was also, Uh, very generous in his support for me. Um, So there are definitely professors at Stanford. I just don't know if institutionally or institution-wide, if any school cares so much or tries so much as Yale Law School does.
1: Now, I probably should say this afterwards, but I'll say it now. Um, McConnell is very highly thought of in the profession. And I know that Dick Posner, the fellow that I wrote about, uh, thinks very, very highly of him. I've seen letters in the archive where he he talks about McConnell and how great a writer he is and how great a scholar he is. So pass that back to him if you would. I will. Um, all right. So we've gotten you onto the Supreme Court and that's important because you begin your book, it's in the introduction, with an arresting, an arresting anecdote of Antonin Scalia. Now, I want you to tell us the anecdote and tell us why it was so important and why you put it in the introduction, because I think almost the whole book pivots on that conversation. Sure. Tell us what
2: happened. Yeah, so it's uh, September. So new law clerks start at the Supreme Court, uh, typically in July during the summer months. Most of their bosses are not even in, in DC anymore. They go home to wherever their homes are. Uh, uh, and so you come to the court and you're writing Uh, Bench memos, pool memos, trying to get certiorari denied in cases generally is the the approach. And then the justices return in mid-September, late September, before the first Monday in October, when the new term starts, the first oral arguments are held. Uh, and so there's always a reception held in the su- Supreme Court This in my year, 2013, 2014, it was on the second floor in a very stately reception room. Uh, and any of the justices who are in the building come and all the law clerks co- uh, come meet them and it's kind of like a mingling session. And uh, as you can imagine, for a bunch of you know 20-somethings, mostly we're all in our late 20s or th- early 30s, this is a very nerve-wracking moment uh, to be meeting all of these uh, people who've written opinions that you've been poring over and obsessing over as a law student. So we're all nervous. We're all nervous all sweating, we get there, uh, and very quickly it's clear that Justice Scalia is going to be the life of the party. Uh, He's telling jokes, he's got this booming, commanding, baritone voice. He's endearing, he's genuine, right? He's asking questions of the law clerks, and so a circle starts to build and build around him and some of the other justices are happy to duck out because they're pretty shy anyways. Um, And at one point, um, there's a pause in the conversation, so I don't remember who it was, but another clerk in a different chamber asked Justice Scalia. Um, Do you have any tips for us? We're starting our clerkships at the Supreme Court. You know, what can we do to be better clerks? Um, And Justice Scalia, uh, this is the story I tell in the introduction of the book, he says, well, you know, a lot of my law clerks think cases at the Supreme Court are so hard, you know, and he puts his hand over his brow and he's like acting it out. They're so hard, you know, what's the answer? It's so hard. I don't know. Well, uh, you know, Actually, they're not. Uh, I've already, you know, is is it constitutional to execute an 18-year-old criminal? I've already said it's okay to execute a 16-year-old. These cases are easy, 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 easy. And uh, it's sort of an eye-opening moment uh, for me because that was not my experience at all. During the couple months before then or afterwards, I found the cases to be at the Supreme Court generally to be extremely difficult, even on ones where I had personal views that might drive me to a direction or the other. Um, and so that sort of frames the whole discussion of the book. The justices are so confident that they know all the answers to these hard social questions, and that is the pathology that I think is driving much of the legitimacy crisis we see today.
1: Well, I think if you went back a few decades, um his argument would have more weight because the percentage of unanimous decisions was higher than it's I think at its low point now, I think. I might be wrong about that. Um so you're sitting there listening to uh him, he probably has food in his hands and he's drinking. and you're thinking what? You're making an assessment of him as a person. What are you thinking about him? Is it an arrogant guy? What do you think?
2: Arrogance has a certain connotation to it that I want to avoid. Um, I think I I don't want to blame. I don't want to suggest that the justices Scalia or Justice Ginsburg, I still tell some stories about in the book, right? It's not just a a problem that I see on the right, even though my personal politics, readers should know, is I am a progressive. Um, I think overconfidence is a bias. It's a human a flaw, a psychological trap that all of us fall into. Um, We all think, especially when we are getting older in our careers, we've had a lot of success. There are people singing our praises uh, for law clerks who will do anything we ask them to do. We all think that we've got the right answers. uh, so uh, I want to lean against the word arrogance, which suggests like a personal flaw or something wrong about a person. And I want to suggest overconfidence. It's a bias. Uh, um, and that um, I think is something that's become more clear to me that the justices succumb to. Uh, uh, I don't know that I have that thought when I'm listening to Justice Scalia tell his story. I think probably at the time I'm just sort of taken aback because he's talking about the death penalty. And I think it's an that's an extremely hard legal and policy question. And apparently he thinks it's easy, easy, easy. Um, Um, but yeah i think i think that's kind of my reaction
1: well this idea of overconfidence it comes at a cost in the sense of scalia thinks that he's right and somebody, somebody else of course has to be wrong now i'll uh tell a brief anecdote of my own experience with scalia i was writing something back in 1990 or 91 and uh Went down to interview him. I was writing something about Posner, and he was friends with Posner, and that's how I got to see him. I go into his chambers, and within a minute, within a minute, he told me that he thought that Sandra Day O'Connor was stupid. That was the word he used, that she was stupid. And that really struck me that uh, he was so convinced that he was right that he's able to say other people were wrong. Mm
2: yeah that yeah. I, so i, I that's, all, that's. In your
1: experience did you did they have when you were there the uh lunch series of lunches where the law clerks i'm sorry the justices would meet with the law clerks of the other chambers and have lunch it was i guess a tradition at least back in the 60s i don't know if it still continues so all of the law clerks got a chance to see each of the justices up close and personal. Did they have that going on when you were there?
2: Yeah, that was still the tradition and uh, okay. that's so, 1 of the reasons so that's in, mild, order, cause... in contrast.
1: So, Leah, with these other justices that you were able to spend some time with, what were they like in comparison and in contrast with him?
2: Yeah, so I do think Scalia is the most <clears throat> uh, confident or overconfident of all of them. He had similarly disparaging remarks to say about several of his other colleagues. I won't name who they were, uh, uh, but similar to the story that you tell about Justice O'Connor. Um, the other justices play their cards. Uh, many of them play their cards closer to their vests, right? So um uh, they're they're not saying things that they think might be in the news. Um, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, is a, especially a good example of this. He's a very, obviously, brilliant man, um, but there's a sense that, you know, sometimes when he goes out to lunch with the clerks, every single thing he says to the clerks uh, from the other chambers is something he said before almost practicing in front of a mirror, right? Or to, to other people, it's very rehearsed, right? It's very, um, you know, he, he's, he sees himself rightly, I think, is very much the, um, uh, the head man, the front, pe- front man of, for the Supreme Court as an institution. And it would be unbecoming for that person to be saying the sort of things that an Antonin Scalia said. So there is a difference in sort of the, the, the personality or the openness of the different justices.
1: All right. Well, one of the things you do in your book, and you do it very well, is that you pull the curtain back a little bit and you show how things work at the court to explain how these opinions end up being what they are. And then you make your recommendations how the court might want to look at things a little differently. The uh, what's the phrase that you use? It's the uh, it's the least harm the, principle. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful phrase, the least harm principle, which I'll ask you to explain in a few minutes. But let me get your uh, opinion about something. One of the, I'll mention it once again, uh, uh, Richard Posner. I'm not trying to sell copies of my uh, biography of- uh, The thing, great book. But one, one of the things he said um, repeatedly in his writings was that law clerks should be able to talk about the people they worked for. And that actually was essential to the working of the judiciary that you had this honest assessment out there in the world of these justices or judges. What's your take? I know that there is a, I think it's an unwritten rule about how law clerks are not supposed to talk about their justices and their personalities and the way things actually happened in the chambers, and they're not supposed to talk about who actually wrote opinions. I understand all that. What's your take on that?
2: So, um, yeah, I think it's a difficult question. I, I certainly think that once a justice retires or passes away, um, any restraint on whether a law clerk, what a law clerk could say about them, their time together, goes away. Uh, but when the justice is still living, when the justice is still serving, I do think there is a... Um, a duty of of confidentiality that a law clerk holds to their justice arising uh, 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 out of the sense of loyalty um, that makes it difficult for clerks to talk about the justices they work for um, it, uh, uh, in ways that I think Judge Posner and uh, frankly the public would like to hear. So I, I think it's a very sensitive subject. It's not a problem unique to the Supreme Court. Maybe the costs are higher at the Supreme Court because it's such a secretive ins- or private institution, um, but it's also true, you know, in, 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 uh, in the White House and in, uh, in Congress, uh, many times uh, uh, staffers, right, will uh, implicitly take a sort of vow of silence, won't speak out against or, or comment on. Sometimes not true, but for the most part, um, this is sort of the way the game is played.
1: Well, there's something of an irony going on because these feeder law professors we were talking about earlier, word gets back to them. Not necessarily about the Supreme Court, though I think that's also true, but certainly about circuit judges. So at Yale, for instance, word got back to at least some of these uh, feeder professors about Alex Kuczynski. This has been written about. I'm not making any of this up. It's all been written about. And that's one reason it all came to light about what he was up to on the Ninth Circuit when it came to the way he treated women in his chambers. Um, Yeah. Interested more in the intellectual aspect, intellectual credibility of the Mm. justices, because we've been moving, it seems to me to this partisan divide Mm. and that the opinions are screaming uh, their positions. With uh, the expectation that they're writing for, um, I don't want to say cult followers, but close to that people who want to hear them say particular things in a particular way. And I wonder if we had more. Inside reporting, so to speak, on what actually happens in the chambers, that we would then have a better sense of who these people are, who are declaring things from the bench, things that affect the way people live. Um, maybe I'm asking for too much. Making well, no, I, I don't think decisions. it's an.
2: Unre- I think it's a very reasonable thing for the the american people to want to know who these look, look listen the, the the big story here obviously that's happening the big elephant is that in the past 2 years the supreme court has seized incredible amounts of power in the sense of deciding huge issues that affect millions of americans on everything from gun safety to environmental law obviously to reproductive autonomy and so the idea, if it were an elected official who was making these choices um we would know because we would know in the course of vetting people and whether to vote for them all the mistakes they've made. We don't know these things about the nine Supreme Court justices. They live very private, sheltered lives. We don't know how they go about thinking uh, uh, other than the way they sort of testified during their stilted congressional hearings or confirmation hearings. So it's a reasonable thing to want to know more about, hey, when Sam Alito writes this majority opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, how does he do that? What is he thinking? What's his process? Those would be great things to know. Um, Maybe they would help the public consume or criticize or know whether to trust the court more. Um, uh, I don't know that it would change, you know, anything fundamental about the sort of pickle that we're in with the Supreme Court, uh, but it would, it would be nice to shine that light on the institution.
1: All right. So you spent a fair amount of time in your book talking about that abortion case that Alito wrote and um, you use it as an example of overconfidence. Yes. Tell me a little more about that before I come out and. (laughs) Try <laughs> and challenge you about that. Sure, no, I look forward Tell to that. Tell me more about how you see it as an example of overconfidence.
2: So, at the bottom, at the heart of what I'm talking about with the overconfidence problem is this when cases get to the Supreme Court, big cases on big questions like abortion or gun safety, they're very hard. They're very hard morally, right? There's no question that the question of uh, that, whether uh, uh, pregnant people should be able to have abortions is a difficult moral issue. People on both sides have very strong views and it's a difficult question legally. Uh, uh, I have a personal policy view, right? I am uh, I am a supporter of reproductive autonomy rights, but I will confess that the legal question, constitutional question, whether the constitution protects a right to abortion is hard, right? I personally, of course, would like the answer to be yes, but I can see the arguments on both sides. What happens when a court, when the justices, when the court is overconfident, is they don't see the gray area. They don't see the difficulty. This is a little bit of what you were talking about before. The justices on one side, the five conservatives in the majority, are almost virtue signaling. They're writing an opinion, talking just to the 40% of America that's pro-life. And to them, this case is easy, right? So think about the kind of overconfidence it it would take for someone like Sam Alito to say that all the justices who voted in Roe and Casey, the supermajority of justices who recognized the right to abortion, the nine out of 12 Republican appointees who, who voted to affirm a right to abortion in those cases, not not only were they not reasonable in reaching that conclusion, they were egregiously wrong. Their brains, the way they thought about this question, were exceptionally weak. Right. Sam saying Thurgood Marshall, uh, uh, William uh, Brennan, Bill Berger, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter. They are egregiously wrong and exceptionally weak to have thought not reasonable, not that this is a debatable, hard question. That's overconfidence in a nutshell. Uh, um, and I, I think that it's true it's fair to say the three justices in the dissent, the liberal justices right in a similarly overconfident register on the other side.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: All right. I'll start my uh my uh, what was the word I used before um I was gonna challenge you or challenge the phrase sure. I use sure okay. challenge yeah I think um, if we were sitting on the court and the uh, abortion case came before us, yeah we'd think it was hard. I don't think for a second that Alito thought it was hard. He probably jumped for joy When the court decided to take the case and he knew what he was going to do for us, or his vote would be from the moment the case was accepted because he's known for 50 years for 50 years. He's known that the court got it wrong. So, for him, it was easy as anything. No. Self doubt about, am I right about this? Am I wrong about this? It was really easy. Now, here's the challenge for you. He writes with a style with an attitude with a tone. That a lot of people found offensive and you put your finger on 1 word, which says so much egregious. It was a slap in the face and you forgot to mention bill Douglas, by the way, William Douglas, it was still there in 73. so all these pretty significant people had come down on 1 side and he was just saying, you're all not just wrong. But as you put it, egregiously wrong. And he writes an opinion that wasn't a front. Most people who believed in abortion rights, how can we understand that decision to take that tone uh, use that approach when he knew the case was going or the opinion was going to be read pretty much by everybody interested in the subject how can we explain that
2: i i think maybe i this is a a situation where i look around everywhere and all i see is overconfidence on the part of these justices i think it's Overconfidence. I think when a person believes something for fifty years, knows that they are correct, unable is unable to see the reasonable arguments, the high stakes on the other side, and acknowledge or speak to them, as is true of the Alita majority opinion, that suggests that they're not open to the possibility that other people have other views. They believed five justices and Dobbs believed that only they Five unelected lawyers never received a vote. Only they could solve this huge problem that's plagued, that's divided 330 Americans. Only they can solve for us uh, uh, what the right to whether there's a constitutional right to abortion. Nobody else's views are worthy uh, of consideration. Um, But I want to contrast the opinion against the person who held the same views for 50 years, John Roberts. Uh, If you sat down and had a private conversation with both of them, both of them would oppose abortion on on a moral and policy ground with equal fervor, right? John Roberts is a product of the same Federalist Society upbringing. Sam Lito, his conservative credentials, his bona fides, uh, up until Dobbs are every bit as strong. Um, And yet John Roberts writes a very different opinion because he is a conservative who, instead of being overconfident, is more humble self-aware of the limitations of his you know his ability to solve not these difficult questions with lawyers arguments Um, His opinion, his separate opinion, says it's it's almost a remarkable example of the kind of least harm approach, humble approach that I'm advocating in the book. John Roberts is the best reason to think it's possible if he can bring one other justice along with him. And he says, I'm not so confident. I'm not nearly as confident as Justice Alito and the majority or the three justice joint dissent that the Constitution does clearly answer this question in one way or another. I don't know, maybe there's a constitutional right to abortion up to 15 weeks, maybe not to 24 weeks like Roe held, but maybe up to 15 weeks. That's what I would say here, it's a middle ground, it would at least allow People who lose pregnant individuals who choose to have an abortion from week 16 to 24 to choose to have the abortion much earlier in their pregnancy. Ninety-nine percent of abortions happen before 16 weeks, right? Um, uh, There's some small number of, of pregnancies that happen. There's a congenital defect discovered afterwards, so that would be a real harm, but. Perhaps abortion travel funds and other support networks would make uh, uh, provide some options for those individuals, right? That's a much humbler uh, opinion. And think about what America might look like today if the Supreme Court had said we're not going to go all the way and overrule the right to abortion. In every single state, you can still have an abortion up to 15 or 16 weeks. Uh, uh, um, uh, it, It might well be a different kind
1: of conversation we're having about the court. Well, a cynic might say, not that I am, of course, I'm not a cynic, but a cynic might say that uh, courts write whatever they want for various reasons, and that Roberts, the reason he wrote what he wrote in his uh, concurring opinion was that he's concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about his legacy, his standing in history. So it's better to be the statesman than the aggressor that Alito was. And there's some truth to that, I think. Yeah. Um, I think that's true. But two things, I want to move to. Sorry, go ahead. I want to move to. uh, I want to try to keep these two people in in our focus, uh, Roberts and Alito. How self aware, and this is obviously asking for speculation, uh, how self aware do you think each of these guys is? Because the thing about hubris, it's in the title of your book, the main title. Supreme hubris, classically speaking, when it comes to hubris, the actor is, has no self-awareness. Do you think these people have self-awareness? Does Alito know exactly what he's doing and say, ah, that is the way I want to be? Or is there a lack of it someplace? Mm. Um, I think this will be responsive. I
2: believe that Just, Justice Roberts, John Roberts, when he goes to sleep at night, he worries not just about the reputation of the court and the court's standing in the public, but he worries about what people think about him. He worries about what his ideological compatriots, conservatives think. He worries about what independents and moderates think. And to some degree, he cares about what uh, well-educated progressives think about him as well. When Sam Alito goes to bed, my guess, my uh, speculation, is he's only worried about what some of those people think about him. He's not worried. It doesn't bother him when progressives or even many centrists criticize him in the way that we've talked about in his opinion in Dobbs. Um, And so you might say that one characteristic of hubris, of overconfidence, is an inability to put yourself in the shoes of your greatest critics and see the value, see the humanity in what they are saying. Um, I think it is true that justice Alito is not, does not do that, but that John Roberts and, you know, some other just, judges before him, justices before him is able to do.
1: Well, that's, that's a good answer. Very thoughtful, um, makes me rethink some things. Tell me what you think about how he acted Alito. That is how he acted after the decision came down was he went on a kind of a grandstanding tour around the world almost. Yeah. you could say, Yeah, uh, talking about his opinion and about the detractors, the people who had the audacity to question him in the court. Yeah, What did you think about that? This is just a personal question to you. Sure. It's uh, not related to your book specifically, but tell me what you think about how he acted. Sure. Because people of course often look the way people act rather than what they say. What do you think about that?
2: I think it is still more evidence of overconfidence on on at least his part personally. And, you know, maybe this is not the most difficult kind of argument to make because we're talking about one justice who may be among the most overconfident at the court. Um, but when you give a speech, I think it was in Rome where he, you know, sort of uh, um, uh, made jokes even about uh, those who've criticized his decision in Dobbs. When you give speeches like that saying, you know, how dare you criticize the court? How dare you uh, uh, try, try to challenge our legitimacy? And then when you go out and you, criti- and you say things like uh, Congress lacks the power to regulate us, uh, uh, to impose an ethic co- or, or, or ask us to uh, create a code of ethics for ourselves, uh, as he has said after ProPublica released reports of his accepting a personal jet flight and a luxury vacation from Peter Singer, whom he then voted in a case to award uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on. Uh, shortly after that vacation, right when 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 you when when you're the type of person who believes you are above reproach, all the decisions you answer are so clearly correct, solving the meaning of our law of our Constitution. Nobody can doubt it, and that you don't have to abide by a basic code of conduct because, of course, you're Supreme Court justices. Everybody has to trust you, right? To me, that strikes me as like maybe the best evidence that you believe you've got all the answers that you're, it's not, you don't even consider for the slightest possibility
1: uh, that you might be wrong. All right, a couple of things. One is some people might uh, challenge your assessment of Alito as the most uh, overconfident. Some people might say that. Gorsuch is just that. And that he has a, again, you don't like the word arrogance, but I'm going to use it. He has an arrogance in a way he hasn't been seen before in the court. And I say that with regard to, in particular, the way he treats or talks to other justices during oral argument. It's been reported. I'm just basing all of them. I have not seen him in action. I'm just basing all of this on what I've read, is that he, at oral argument, seems to take the, I know better than everyone. And now that Scalia is gone, it seems that he might be the one who takes that title of, most overconfident? What do you think? Yeah, so that?
2: we should distinguish between two different kinds of, co- of confidence or overconfidence. One is on an interpersonal level, right? The way well, we, blo- whether we're blustery and harsh and aggressive. Um, but that's different than sort of that uh, um, ideological or intellectual kind of overconfidence where we are so sure we have the correct answers uh, that we don't defer or trust or consider the views of other people. Right. And so a person like Felix Frankfurter, you obviously are very familiar with all the justices over history, is an example of someone who has extreme personal interpersonal confidence. Felix Frankfurter was famous for being basically a jerk to his colleagues, lecturing them, thinking he knew best and how dare anybody vote other than him. But his ideological view, his jurisprudential view was incredibly humble. He believed that the Supreme Court should basically always, almost always, trust the wisdom of elected officials because they would know better the answers to the hard questions of the day than these nine elected justices. That's an incredibly humble view, combined, married to a, uh, uh, overconfident personal dynamic right um i think justice gorsuch my sense is from the re- same reporting that you're uh reading is that he may have some of this interpersonal kind of overconfidence blustery in the way that scalia had um but i think jurisprudentially he's less over less confident than alito right there are enough instances where i i have seen him write decisions where he's open-minded he changes his he's well open to changing his views he takes his he takes frankly um Uh, view uh, positions that are in contravention of this sort of standard conservative movement playbook uh, that suggests to me that he is open-minded about some of these legal questions, Uh, not many of them, not all of them by any chance, but just enough of them that maybe he's lower on the sort of ideological overconfidence
1: than Alito. All right, before I I get to uh, the um, least harm principle, I want to ask you what you think about the hearings that these folks go through for their confirmation. Should we have known about Alito back then? What year was it? 2006, was it? Uh, Yeah. 2006 for him. Should we have known then from the way he played with, toyed with the uh, committee, that he is exactly what we now know him to be? Or he was exactly what we now know him to be. Should we have known then?
2: I, I think we could have known to
1: some extent. I mean, it was
2: pretty, Clear that, right? So Alito is nominated by uh, George W. Bush after the failed nomination of his longtime friend Harriet Myers, um, (laughs) who Democrats would have been all too happy to confirm to the Supreme Court because it was not at all clear that she had strong ideological uh, convictions in either direction. But it's the conservative movement that sort of killed her nomination. there were plenty of signs that Oedo was a very steadfast, conservative. Uh, some of the lower court opinions he'd written on the Third Circuit uh, uh, took this view. So I don't think he, he anybody should be surprised. Um, but there's some path dependency to what happens when, when to how justices evolve in their time in the court, right? It's possible that John Roberts... Uh, could have turned out in a similar way. I think there are a lot of reasons why he's he's pivoted more towards the middle and been more humble, some having to do with the fact that he's sitting in the chief justice's seat. And so he, the court bears his name. And uh, therefore, he's concerned maybe with its reputation more than associate justices might be. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think um, Alito's uh, um, true colors. He did not hide any. The, he did not really hide the ball uh, in, in his confirmation proceedings.
1: I have my own theory, which is that we don't pay enough attention to what we see when it comes to the personality that they're displaying and that we have a right to say that's not the right kind of person for us. Put aside all this legal stuff. Mm. We don't like that kind of person on the court. Mm. Uh, We don't have the right. I think most people think to judge personality, but I, I wonder if that's not a better way of going at things. It might mean that you'd have to have, um. Different kind of hearings that people would prepare for them differently. I don't know, but it just seems to me that personality is such a big component yeah. in the way people lead their lives. I think that's a fair thing for us to say when it comes to justices. Oh, they're just about the law. That that's a mistake. Now, how did you decide to write this book, and how did you come to understand your sure uh, fulcrum principle of least farm principle. Sure. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So um, to the first point, why did I write the book? So um, I I think like many listeners am deeply worried about the future of the Supreme Court, about the future of our country. I'm worried that uh, many, many Americans will find less and less reason to continue abiding by basic democratic norms, right? Why would um, uh, anybody keep playing by the rules of our constitutional game if they believe the referees, the Supreme Court, uh, have rigged the game against them on all the causes right um, and this is not just an American problem right we've seen uh, a loss of trust in the judiciary packed Supreme courts lead to the erosion of democracies in Poland and Turkey and Venezuela um, where it looks like America is closer to that fate than we uh, ever hoped as Ziblat and levitsky have written uh, before so I that's what motivated the book um, but at a at a at a more granular level, I'm not convinced that either side in sort of this traditional partisan uh, spectrum has the right answer, the right response, right? The traditional progressive response is let's uh, emasculate the court. Let's pack it uh, with more justices, more liberal justices. Um, and that's certainly a short-term outcome that I could maybe find personally desirable just on a policy matter. but. You know, I don't care just about the here and now or the next 10 years. I care about the United States of America that my children and my grandchildren will live in. The only thing more scary than one Sam Alito telling my daughter what to do with her body is the idea of seven Sam Alitos telling her what to do with her body after Republicans packed the court in retaliation for Democrats packing the court, which would certainly happen. So I'm not convinced that that's, uh, actually packing the court is a good answer. I'm also certainly not convinced with uh, the you know the conservative approach of everything's fine, This is the Supreme Court's just doing law, there's no politics, trust the court, trust us, right? I'm, I'm not so convinced of that either. And so what the book tries to set out is sort of a middle path that, set, that is plausible because the Supreme Court has apply, has done it before across a range of cases that I try to describe in the book. Um, uh, 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 a sort of third way, a least harm way where instead of sort of confidently declaring and remaking the law in its image on every issue like today's conservative court. Um, And instead of packing, actually packing the court, where perhaps we can put enough pressure on uh, some of the justices, John Roberts, maybe Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett, to self-discipline, to make themselves more humble in the same way the Supreme Court did after the New Deal uh, uh, and embrace this sort of least-harm approach where we're trying, the Supreme Court in hard cases, is trying to do the least harm possible.
1: Well, what about this? (laughs) I I don't want this to seem aggressive because it's It's not. I'm just trying to probe. It's not as though they don't know how to do it. They just don't want to do it. Yes, that's true. Well, to be clear, how do you change that? Yes, mindset, that sensibility that says we're not going to yield. Yes.
2: That's the million-dollar question, right? Because you could be on board with the idea, with the theory of the least harm approach. You could read the cases I described where the court does it and that sort of garner approval across partisan uh, uh, lines, and you could say, yeah, that's a great answer. The court should do less harm possible. It should rule against whichever side has the greatest options to protect itself. So even though that side loses in the Supreme Court, they're still fine because they can go and do these other things in the democratic process or just sort of through private action to protect themselves. Um, You might say, that's a great theory. Why on earth would we think the Supreme Court would ever do that? And the answer is self-interest. The answer, Bill, is, uh, what we need to do, the American public, if we want this court to change its ways, to be humbler, to do less harm in the big cases that divide us, Americans need to vote. They need to do, this is history talking, we need to do exactly what this, what the American public did in response to an overconfident court in the 1930s. We need to vote. Our legislators, when after they win elections, Democrats uh, uh, don't need to just go back and raise more money and run for re-election. They have to pass actually lo- actually pass new laws challenging the Supreme Court on things like voting rights and reproductive autonomy. We need to threaten court reform, taking power away from the court in big issues like abortion and gun safety, voting rights. And when you do all those things together, you send a message to the justices, right? It's a self-interest, purely selfish message. Pre- imagine you're Brett Kavanaugh. And if the American people turn out in a 2024 election and elect enough Democrats, they carve out from the filibuster, enact a new Voting Rights Act, strip the Supreme Court of power to decide the fate of the constitutionality of voting rights or any other number of issues, what would you rather do if you're Brett Kavanaugh? Would you rather moderate your vote, become more centrist and say, you know what? We're gonna be more moderate, more humble. We're gonna apply this least harm approach um, so that Congress, you can trust us. You don't need to take power away from us. Or would you rather keep being this steadfast, reliable conservative vote on a court that no longer has any power because Congress is taking its power away, or because the court, Congress is thinking about packing it? Now you're like sort of the, a minority justice and the laughing stock, right? Um, the bet that the book makes is that. Two members of the court will do what two members of the court did in 1937, which is for purely self-interested reasons. They will dial down their overconfidence, be more humble, and take this least harm kind of approach instead of the overconfident approach the court's taking
1: now. Well, a couple of things. One is um, I want to ask you, we have two justices in their 70s, I think, two, I think, Alito and uh, Thomas Thomas. So, I want to ask you in a minute who you think we should replace them with if we. Get to that point and we will, but the other thing is, you mentioned the uh, Supreme Court in the 1930s a couple of times the uh, great uh, crisis in 1937. Uh, I was doing some reading about this and uh, Franklin Roosevelt said something really smart about the conflict back in 37 he said, we need better people on the court. He was thinking mostly of McRunnels, who was just a terrible, terrible person. But he said, we need better people, not better legal scholars, better people. And I think that's where the answer lies. That's why I was asking the question about Supreme Court hearings, because the them as people, or they as people come up. So anyway, that's just my observation. Perhaps you can respond to that. But I also want to get, I've asked a few people this in my podcast, and I should mention, by the way, that you were talking about Frankfurter. I actually did a podcast with Brad Snyder who sure. last year published a, a massive biography of Felix Frankfurter and he explains a lot about what picked Frank, what made Frankfurter tick. All right, so if you uh, had a chance you're in the White House counsel's office and you get the word, we got to pick a couple of new Supreme Court justices. What are you looking for? Are there anyone is there, is there anyone out there that you actually think would be good for the court? Yes. To me,
2: there's one important issue that is there's a lot of if you're a progressive right now, there's a lot of things to be worried about. You're worried about immigration. You're worried about civil rights protection for LGBTQ people. You're worried about gun safety. You're worried about abortion. But there's one issue that actually is is more important than all of them, uh, uh, because it is the issue uh, upon which all of those issues are based or decided, and that is voting rights. Right. Uh, uh, the, at the heart of what's wrong with America today are the degradation of our democracy and our democratic norms of the past two decades is uh, partisan gerrymandering uh, uh, and the inability to protect the right to vote for people of color, low income individuals. If America had a much more inclusive democracy and if elections were fair, they were drawn up uh, in districts that are drawn by map makers rather than politicians. So that um, rather than the primary determining who's the congressman for 400 of the 435 seats, right you actually had uh, 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 candidates from Republican and Democratic Party who had to appeal to the median voter, the moderate, independent American. Right. And there was a significant number of those uh, individuals in Congress and the Senate in the House. Right. America would be a much different place. Uh, So uh, to me, there's no more important issue if Democrats ever recapture the House and can carve out from the filibuster than enacting a new voting rights act. That would require states to have independent redistricting commissions uh, so that uh, elections are fair and they're competitive uh, um, and not um, uh, partisan gerrymandered uh, and to protect the right to vote for these uh, these marginalized communities. And so if that's the issue you care about most, right, there's a clear person who should be the next nominee if, if Joe Biden gets to nominate another justice. And that's Myrna Perez. She's a uh, Second Circuit judge uh, who previously was the Brendan Center's director of the voting rights, it's voting rights and elections program, brilliant lawyer. I don't know her personally, so this is not like a personal plug, uh, but uh, by all accounts, a brilliant lawyer, uh, um, one of the nation's leading voting rights experts. Um, and that's the kind of person you want at the court um, uh, to protect this fundamental right that is the court itself has said is preservative of all others.
1: All right, so tell me how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the future when it comes to the court?
2: I'm pessimistic um i'm uh but i'm maybe a little bit less pessimistic than many other uh progressives um and the reason i'm a little bit less pessimistic is because um i believe that the american people are responding to this moment, right? I don't see any other way to describe the outpouring of protests, people knocking on doors in states like Kansas uh, to defeat uh, ballot propositions that would roll back abortion rights. I don't see any way to interpret that other than Americans rising up, everyday Americans on the streets, rising up um, on issues that matter to them. And if that is true, then I can see a path towards just enough Democrat support in the Senate to carve out from the filibuster to recapture the House. And if we can, in fact, pass a voting rights bill that gets rid of partisan gerrymandering, that makes elections fair and competitive, um, that is the kind of game changer, changing the basic rules of our democratic system. uh, that can sort of level the playing field and make um, our, our country more responsive to the, the will of voters. And by the way, it's the kind of thing that if we strip the Supreme Court of jurisdiction to decide the future of the Voting Rights Act can put pressure on the court to moderate itself too, right? So I, I can see a path, but when I go to sleep most nights, um, I forget that path and I'm a, I, I almost weep as I think about um, you know, the, the terrible things that have happened for, from, guns. I mean, people are dying because of Bruin potentially because of Rahimi, a new second amendment case, people are dying because of the Supreme court thousands of of pregnant people don't have access to basic reproductive uh, care that, uh, that they did for 50 years in this country. Right. So, um, I'm not unduly optimistic.
1: All right. Now tell me what you're working on these days and what you plan for the future when it comes to your writing, your research in writing.
2: Uh, sure. So, um, I am working on, maybe this is in the vein of uh, humility, um, uh, which is sort of the prescription, one of the prescriptions in Supreme Hubris. Um, I made a mistake uh, more than five years ago in an article that I wrote in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision called Janus versus American Federation of State Council and Municipal Employees, Council 31. Uh, If somebody follows uh, union politics or labor law in the United States, they might recognize that case. So the Janus ruling held in 2018, that when 22, 23 states for 50 years in America instituted a practice called fair share fees, that was sort of the, the um, financial backbone of, of organized labor in the public sector, teachers unions, uh, um, state and council, county municipal workers, um, that those fair share fees, the Supreme Court held violated the First Amendment, right? So what are fair share fees? Uh, the basic idea is that under these 23 state labor law, these blue states, pro-labor states, Uh, Unions have a duty of fair representation, they have to bargain on behalf of provide grievance uh, representation to all workers, even if the worker opposes the union, even if they're not a member of the union, the union still has to fight for them and represent them and give them a wage increase. Um, And because these workers are going to benefit from the wages and benefits increases the union bargains for and spends its money on. Uh, the law required these uh, objecting anti union workers to pay a fair share, you know, 1% of their salary to help pay for the union's bargaining costs. And the Supreme Court held in Janus, that violates the First Amendment right to free speech with these objecting workers. I predicted uh, along with many others I was far from alone that this would going to be a huge problem for public sector unions because everybody was going to start quitting the union even pro union workers why would you pay you know $1000 a year in membership dues if you're going to get the same benefits no matter what now that the supreme court says you don't have to pay um, so I predicted that was going to be a problem unions were going to lose 15 20 30% of their members their budgets, um, and so I proposed this radical sort of legislative solution to try and to fix that, which we don't really need to get into. It's been five years, I was wrong. Something amazing happened. Turns out everyday workers in public schools, hospitals, uh, county municipal offices, um, they recognize the value of their unions because they know that the union bargains for, a 13% wage premium, only costs them one or 2% of their wages for that. It represents them if they've been fired or treated unfairly by their employers, right? They see all the benefits of the union. And so their response to Janus was, no problem. We're gonna have conversations with our, our colleagues and make sure everybody is paying. And so in the five years since Janus, there's been about a 1% decline in union membership in, the, in public sector unions, uh, which is the similar rate of, dec- of decline as the five years preceding. So it's almost like Janice has not really made much of an impact. I was wrong, many were, people were wrong. And so I'm working on an article explaining how I made that mistake and what it can teach us actually about progressive responses to a Supreme Court that issues decisions we think are cataclysmic because Progressives thought Janice was going to be crippling, devastating for for labor, for Democrats, um, and it turns out ordinary Americans have fought back and
1: rendered that court decision more or less irrelevant. So, when you're finished with it, you'll send it to Alito with the idea that maybe he can learn how to recognize his own mistakes. So, uh, well, Aaron, <laughs> we have to include uh, it. In has been almost an hour. It's been 57 minutes. Um, You've been terrific on the podcast. I hope everyone um, takes a look at your book, because one of the uh, the nice features of your book is your pro style, your personality, your uh, enthusiasm for the subject comes through. And on top of that, you write for people who don't actually work in the area all the time. So it's a book that's readable, which I think is about the best thing you can say about a book. It's readable. So I re- recommend that everyone take a look at it. All right. So again, thanks for doing this. I'm going to uh, stop the recording. I want to say a couple things after we're done. But again, thank you for doing this. Thanks so guys. much for having me, Bill.